And now, Spirit of the living God, who gave to Daniel this vision recorded in chapter 7 of his letter, a vision of history and of the future, grant to us now your illuminating work so that our minds may have understanding, our souls may be nourished, our hearts may be, may be gripped and thrilled with what is yet to come, and our lives may be lived for the glory of the one who is worthy, even Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And take your Bibles again to Daniel chapter 7, the passage that Phil and Lee read for us. Daniel chapter 7. Uh, we have here in Daniel 7 an important vision that Daniel saw. When we, um, when we left Daniel in chapter 6 with his furry feline friends, we probably expected that we would follow him sequentially uh, into the next adventure in his life. But the opposite actually happens here in chapter 7. This is not something that follows the events of chapter 6. Rather, it is a flashback. It is a transportation, as it were. Daniel is transported back in his writing back to uh, the years of the final king of Babylon, King Belshazzar. It opens in verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar. So it's a flashback in time. And in this flashback, uh, Daniel now gives to us um, a sequence of dreams uh, that he records. There are four of them. And uh, to my knowledge, it is the largest, the longest sequence of dreams anywhere in God's Word. What's different now at this point is that Daniel is no longer interpreting the dreams. Uh, you remember he was doing that up to this point in time. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Belshazzar had a dream. Daniel had this amazing gift to be able to interpret those dreams. That's not what happens here. It's not a king having the dream. It's Daniel having the dream. And interestingly, he does not interpret his own dream. Rather, it's clear as you read the passage, all of chapter 7 through, that there is some kind of a heavenly messenger, an angelic being, it appears, who interprets the dream for him. Now, chapter 7 is both a beginning and a conclusion. It is a conclusion of the Aramaic written part of the prophecy that he gives. You remember chapters 2 through 7 are written in the Aramaic language, which was the language in, Bab in Bab Bab Babylon in these days, and it became the, the language of the Lord Jesus. The Jews uh, spoke this lang language when uh, Jesus walked the earth. So we now come to the conclusion. This is the last chapter of the book that deals with, or that is written in the Aramaic language. Beginning at chapter 8, we're back into Hebrew again. Of course, we don't pick that up when we read our English Bibles, but that's the case. So it is the beginning and a conclusion, but it is also the beginning, it is the conclusion of the historical part of Daniel. That is, of the historical events and experiences that Daniel underwent and that he records for us. Beginning now in chapter 7, we have the beginning of the prophetic part of his book. Daniel 7 to Daniel 12 are prof, prof, prophecies, and as I said, a total of four that are here. So up until now, the unfolding narrative of Daniel's life, history, now prophecy. Now, one other thing happens. At this point in Daniel chapter 7, we are taken back to an ancient form of writing 
not just the language of that day, but the genre of writing. And this is called apocalyptic, apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic literature is writing that is full of symbols. And so we have here in this passage uh, mysterious-looking animals that represent certain things. We, we have enigmatic phrases and numbers that are used here. So in this final Aramaic chap, chap, chapter filled with apocalyptic literature, we actually reach a high point in Daniel's writing. Daniel is given here a grand vision. He's given a grand vision of the whole history of the world. From the days of Daniel until the final day. One commentator has written that this is the single most important chapter in Daniel's book, if not in the entire Bible. It is the center of Daniel's book. So as you look at your Bible right now, chapter 7, you actually hold in your hands and you're seeing with your eyes the key to understanding history. Fifty years after Nebuchadnezzar had come to the throne, or sorry, after Nebuchadnezzar had subjected the Jews to exile, and uh, they were suffering there, their suffering had now reached a climax. And Daniel was given at this point a vision. Now there's so much that he saw, we won't be able to look at every detail of it today. I'm extending this message into next Sunday morning as well. But I want to give you an overview of what he saw. There are two specific things that I really want you to see. And the first is, is that Daniel saw an allegory of human history. Verse 1 says, he wrote down the substance of his dream. What did Daniel see? Well, he begins in verse 2. He says, Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. Daniel saw four beasts. Four beasts. Now he doesn't explain what the beasts are at this point in time because the interpretation hasn't been given to him yet. But he does give us a clue as to the nature of these four beasts. And he gives us two clues, actually. The first one is where these beasts come from. You'll notice verse uh, 2 speaks of the churning sea, and verse 3 says they came up out of the sea. They came up out of the sea. In the ancient world, the, the, the peoples of Pal, 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 Palestine and beyond, they, they, saw the, they saw the sea as hostile. They saw the sea as representing all of, the, all of the forces of chaos and evil that were in the world, that, 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 that sought to bring an end to the good order of God's creation. That's reinforced here when it says that the four winds of heaven were blowing on the sea, from the north, the south, the east, and the west, all converging on the sea. And so you have a, a picture here of a tumultuous, chaotic sea. Daniel is telling us that the beasts emerge out of that sea. In other words, these beasts, they represent the, the disorder and the hostility of the world. These beasts are evil. That's what Daniel's saying. Now you'll notice verse 17. He makes it clear what these beasts really are. Go down to verse 17. The four beasts are four kingdoms 
that will rise from the earth. So these are political entities that Daniel sees. Now, they are described as um, a lion with wings, a bear that is lopsided, um, a leopard that has four great wings, and then a a monster. So animals are used to describe these kingdoms, and the use of, an, of, an, of animals should not be uh, um, surprising to us. It's not uncommon imagery, even today, to refer to certain nations. Nations have symbols, and to use animals. The United States is the great eagle. Russia is the great bear. Britain is the majestic lion. And Canada? What's our symbol? A beaver. the majestic rodent, (laughs) the only country in the world that has a rodent as its national symbol. I'm being very Canadian right now, aren't I? As we take a closer look at these beasts, we see that they are not ordinary animals. A lion has wings, a leopard has four wings, they're hybrids. Their mutations. This underscores their evil nature. They represent the evil and malignant kingdoms of the world. Verse 4. Verse 4. Let's read verse 4. The first was like a lion, it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. It's interesting that in the, down the main street of Babylon, which archaeologists have unearthed, they've discovered statues in the earth of lions with wings down the main street of the city. This is Babylon. From 626 to 539 B.C., this was the massive empire in the world. The Ishtar Gate, which I've mentioned in a former message, there's a replica of this in the museum in London, and it, 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 it's, it's breathtaking. I believe there's one in Iraq as well. And on the Ishtar Gate are symbols of lions with wings. Verse 4 tells us that its wings were torn off and lifted from the ground, so it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. These emblems of Babylon's power, the king himself, as it were. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, how in his pride he he was brought down low and he, he acted like an animal on the ground. But he repented and he had a change of heart. A human heart was given to him. And 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, Belshazzar was killed and another beast arose. It's described here in verse 5. There was a second beast, which looked like a bear, was raised up on one of its sides and had three three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Now notice the bear is not a normal bear. The bear is, is lopsided. It's higher on one side than it is on the other. And this probably speaks of the Medo-Persian empire, which existed from 539 B.C. to 330 years B.C., and in the early days of that empire, the, the Medes were the, were the dominant force, but then the Persians took power, and so there was, there was a lopsidedness to the kingdom that Daniel sees here. One thing that really stands out is that this second beast was, was greater in its ferociousness 
Then the first beast, and it talks about the three ribs that are in its mouth between its teeth and this command to, to eat its, its fill of flesh. This is probably a reference to three kingdoms that Persia suppressed, and it extended its kingdom beyond uh, Babylon. This kingdom stretched from Egypt and the Aegean Sea in the, in the west all the way to the Indus River in Pakistan today. It had its fill of flesh. It conquered more ter- ter- territory up to this point in time than any nation ever had. But in the year 330 B.C., it also was crushed. It was crushed by the next beast who is referred to in verse 6. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Now a leopard is not the fastest animal, but I think the cheetah is, but the leopard can outrun the cheetah at a longer distance in pace. This is probably a reference to the empire of Greece. You remember Alexander the Great, how he conquered the known world at that time with great, amazing speed. In the year 334 BC, uh, Alexander the Great took his armies across the Aegean Aegean Sea. They they, uh, um, conquered Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and from there they just kept on going. 30,000 men was the strength of his army, which actually was relatively small, but they moved with great lightning speed, and they smashed the Persian armies, which may have been 10 times larger than Alexander's Macedonian army. And he extended the kingdom of Greece by the time he was 33 years of age, all the way to the borders of India. Now notice verse 6 says that this kingdom had four heads. Four heads. This is probably a reference to the fact that after Alexander's young death in, uh, when he was 33, that there were four other kings that emerged and there, there were four kingdoms or dynasties that emerged and they controlled the kingdom that was once Alexander's. And they imposed Greek culture, Hellenistic culture on the world at that time. Two Sundays from now, We'll get into chapter 8, and we're going to talk about Alexander the Great and one of these rulers that comes in the end and uh, the significant role that he plays. But or after 267 years, another beast emerges in verse 7. And you'll notice that this beast is not, it's not referred to as like a certain animal. It's not an animal at all in a sense It's a monster. After that, in my vision at night, I looked. There before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims, trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts. This, I believe, is the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome, a super beast, different than all of the beasts that preceded it, not a hybrid, not a mutant but a monster. Total destruction is described in these verses. Iron teeth trampling down everything else. And from our vantage point in his, his, history, we can look back and, and we know about the Roman legions and how they marched across the world at that time and broke the empire of Greece. How they forced vast regions in Africa and Asia and Europe to submit to the Caesar in Rome. 
This monster was different than any of the, of the other kingdoms that came before it. It was the first, as it were, universal empire. Rome was characterized by conquering and crushing power and its ability then to consolidate uh, into one all of the nations that it had seized. Historians tell us that, that Rome possessed a power and a, longev- a longevity unlike any of the other kingdoms that came before. Nations were crushed. Its power was an irresistible one. It extended its influence even greater than the other three. In just a couple of weeks' time, we will enter Advent season, and we will be reminded again that Jesus Christ was born in Roman-occupied Palestine. He was born when Caesar Augustus was at the height of his power, and he issued a decree that the whole Roman world, that is all the nations subjugated to Rome, would have to register for taxation. Augustus set up Herod the Great as his puppet king. And 33 years after Jesus was born, he stood before a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. And this Roman sentenced Jesus to death. The Roman guard crucified him. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Paul was beheaded in Rome. And the apostle John was banished by Rome to an island in the Aegean Sea where he was left to bleach and rot upon the rocks of a penal colony there. Rome burned Christians at the stake. Rome threw Christians to the lions in the Colosseum, the fourth beast. Now look what Daniel says in verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all of this. Daniel Daniel was troubled. His spirit was stirred up. Each kingdom that he saw, each animal that he saw disturbed him. But the fourth one bothered him more than all the others. And it's clear in this passage that he was fascinated by the fourth beast. Look at the last line of verse 7. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Now read with me verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, he, he's mesmerized. What, what, what are these ten horns? He's thinking about this. But there before me was another horn, a little one. Now, it's, it's said to be little not because it's insignificant, not because it doesn't have power, but it stands out, it's, it's different from all the others, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, look at verse 11, then I continue to watch. Because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, Daniel is transfixed by the ten horns and by this little horn. Look at verse 19. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. Verse 20. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up the horn that looked more imposing than all the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Daniel sees ten horns on this fourth beast and and, and he's wondering, "What what does this mean? So 
when we think of the ten horns, what, what does this symbolism refer, refer to? It seems to indicate that the fourth beast, even though the fourth beast is judged and is killed, down in verse 11 and 12, even though that happens, this fourth beast has what we might call different phases or different manifestations. The beast is killed, but, but, but the beast doesn't go away. Somehow it manages to live on. Throughout history, this, this beast is going, to, is going to appear again and, and again. The number 10 is used, a, a, a symbolic number meaning completeness or fullness, meaning a multiplicity of times. You see, Daniel saw not only the characteristics of this beast, but he saw an unfolding history of it. He saw a perpetuity in the beast, a perpetuity in Rome, even though Rome was no more. Ten horns indicating a a succession of kings, uh, kingdoms that would come later. And, and, and while all of these ten are, diff, are different from each other, they, they seem to share an essential unity with the fourth beast. After Rome then, there is going to be, Daniel sees, more Rome-like kingdoms emerge on the stage of human history. The fourth produces, as it were, a series of kings, successive Kingdoms who all share in some way a historical connection to Rome in terms of the spirit of Rome, the makeup of Rome, the the philosophy, the thinking, the, the ideology of Rome, the goals of Rome, the stance of Rome against the people of God. That's what Daniel sees. So from the time of the destruction of Rome in 430 AD until the appearance of a a little horn that will emerge just before the final judgment occurs at the end of time. There is going to be, Daniel sees, a succession of the fourth beast. These ten horns will have the character of the fourth beast. Look at verse 24. It's very clear in verse 24 that these horns, it says, the ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. They will come from the fourth beast. Now there are some who look at this and, and they read it and they say, well, this, this proves that there's going to be a revival of the Roman Empire uh, in the last days just before Jesus comes. But I think that misses the point of what Daniel is saying. Daniel is not seeing just the last few days, as it were, before Jesus comes. Daniel is seeing all of history from the days of Rome until the final little horn. In other words, Daniel is seeing the whole scope of history and the spirit of Rome that gets carried on. Remember, too, he's talking here in apocalyptic language, and, and, and it's, it's rife with symbols In the Bible, horns usually represent kings or powers. An example of this is found when Zechariah, the son of John, begins to praise the Lord uh, at the birth of John and the coming of the Messiah. And 
Zechariah says that, that God has raised up in the house of Israel a horn of salvation for his people from the line of David. Jesus is a, is a horn, a power. In other words, he, the, the, the power of salvation, the power to save, that's what the horn of salvation represents. So these 10 then are meaning complete or full, means a multiplicity. It means a complete number of kingdoms that are going to follow after Rome. And all of these 10 will have the power of the fourth beast in full display. But it's important, as I want to underscore this, that Rome was destroyed, that Rome is no more. But the spirit of Rome is going to live on. The spirit of Rome is going to manifest itself in different ways throughout time. And we should not be surprised by this because the spirit of Rome is the spirit of Babylon. But look again. Daniel isn't just intrigued by the ten horns. He's intrigued, according to verse 20, by this little horn that emerges out of the ten horns and pushes several of them aside one little horn. Go back to verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them. Now Daniel focuses in on this. His attention is attracted to it, and it's written for us, and it should attract our attention as well, because it appears in the vision here that this horn is the final phase of Rome. This little horn is the final manifestation of Rome's spirit. Daniel knew that it was important, and in verse 8, he describes this horn as having the eyes of a man and a mouth that speaks boastfully. So, in one sense, this, this horn is described as a human being. He has the eyes of a man. It's rep- repeated again in verse 20, and I think the, the the features that Daniel brings out here is pointing to human, a human mind. The church father, Jerome, who, who lived and died just years before the Roman Empire ended. We're going back over 1,600 years now. Jerome wrote about this verse. He said that we may not, according to, to the notion of some, think it to be a devil or a demon, but one of those men One of those men in whom the whole of Satan is to dwell bodily. This little horn is great and terrifying and described almost as supernatural, but but the little horn is a man. There are two things that stand out here. The first is that this man, this little horn, is going to attack God. It says here in verse 21 that he had a mouth that spoke boastfully. Look now at verse 25. He will speak against the Most High. So what is he boasting about? His boasting is against the Most High God. In other words, this is a man who is going to, as it were, claim that he is as great as God. He's going to exalt himself to the place of God. He also attacks God's people. Again, look at verse 21. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Go down to verse 25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress the saints. 
oppress the saints. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. He's going to attack the people of God. So who is he? Who is this man? Who is this man in whom is embodied the spirit of Rome? Now the angels interpret for us and place him just before the final judgment which is to come because that begins in verse 9 with the arrival of the kingdom of God. So if this is the case, then I think it's, it's safe to conclude that what Daniel is seeing here is exactly what the Apostle Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians where he talks about just before the coming of Christ, the man of lawlessness will appear, the man of sin. The Apostle John calls him the Antichrist. And he will emerge just prior to the end of history itself. To sum sum all of this up, in one remarkable picture, in an allegory, the entire course of history is laid out for us from Daniel's day right up to the time of the empire of Rome when Jesus came until our time today and to the end of human government. But not all Daniel saw was depressing. Are, Are you depressed in light of what I've said up to this point? It's not all depressing because he's also given, the second thing that he's given is a vision of the climax of history itself. So beginning at verse nine we read, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. Now what are these thrones? It's not one throne, but it's thrones. And the ancient of days took his seat. Presumably the ancient of days, that is God himself, sits down in one of these thrones. But the others are going to be seated there too. And you look at the last line of verse 10. The court was seated and the books were opened. These thrones or massive chairs are for the members of the jury. And the Ancient of Days is the judge with the jury. We have here the picture of a courtroom. And the jury sits with God. And the last line says in verse 10 that the, the books are going to be opened. So presumably all of, the, all of the evil of the four beasts, all of the evil of the four beasts right up to the final little horn, the Antichrist, all of the evil throughout human history has been recorded in the books. And Daniel sees three specific things that he wanted his people then to see who were living in captivity, in exile. He wanted them to see this, and we need to see it too. And the first is this, the Ancient of Days, God Almighty Himself, will sit in His court. He's going to sit in His court. Now, up until now, there has been no direct mention of God in everything that Daniel has seen. This changes right at this point. After this vision in which it appears that evil has the last word, God appears. And Daniel sees him. And he takes his throne. And the throne he sits on here is the throne of judgment. Now the description that Daniel gives to us is dazzling. Daniel talks about what he was wearing, his clothing. He, it says here his clothing was as white as snow, verse, verse 9. White as snow, the symbol of purity and holiness. The one who sits on the throne is altogether radiant and pure in holiness. 
Daniel describes his hair. His, his, his hair was white like wool. Again, the idea of purity comes through. But, but white hair meaning the ancient of days, the, the wise one, the altogether wise one, the sheer brilliance of his unmatchable wisdom. The one who will sit on the throne to judge the world is one who will judge wisely with untainted justice. Now the throne is actually described in these verses. And the throne itself is dazzling as well. It it says in the latter part of verse 9, his throne was blazing with fire. Again, a symbol of the holiness and the judgment of God. His awe-inspiring presence. This is amazing. Daniel saw this 2,500 years ago. He saw the the final future day when the Ancient of Days will sit on his throne. Judgment flowing as it were out from God's throne. Now notice verse 9. This is an interesting, uh, the last uh, line of verse 9. And its wheels were all ablaze. And when you and I think of a throne, we don't think of wheels. God's not in a wheelchair. But his throne has wheels. What does this mean? And the wheels are blazing with fire as well. This means that the judgment of God is not confined to one particular place. The judgment of God is universal in its scope. God can be anywhere at any time. He moves His throne where He wants to. He brings judgment not just to a few, not just to one nation, but to all the nations, to all of the universe. And there is no place to hide from the throne. There is no place to escape from the judgment of God. Verse 10 says, a river of fire was flowing, coming out before before him. Judgment flowing. And notice what also it says in verse 10 about the, it appears to be angels. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. If we take this as a literal number, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. It's just the Bible's way of saying there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And then in verse 14, another figure, verse 13 and 14, another figure emerges. Daniel sees, what does he see? In my vision at night, verse 13, I looked and there before me, literally he said, look, one, like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the the ancient of days and was led into his presence. What, what Daniel sees here is, is breathtaking. Notice what he saw and what he said. One like a son of man. That's the key word, like a son of man. Now this expression, son of man, a son of man, there is nothing special about that at all. This is, when Daniel used this expression, this was not a special title. Son of man sim- simply means a human being. If, if you are alive and you're a son and your father was a man, presumably he was, then what are you? You're the son of a man. It's just simply referring to a human being. That's what the term means. It, at this point, was not some special title. This is the same expression that, that the Lord uses when he speaks to Ezekiel. If you read his prophecy through, he keeps calling him son of man, son of man. Even Daniel in this book is called a son of man. But the important word is like, like a son of man. He's like a human being. But when you say like a human being, what are you implying? 
He is more than a human being. He's being contrasted here with the four beasts. Now notice what it says. This son of man, this human being, one who looks like a human being, is coming with what? He's coming with the clouds. The beasts come out of the sea. They come out of the chaos and the evil of our world. But the son of man, he comes out of heaven. The prophets and the Psalms use this expression of of the Lord riding on the clouds. Isaiah said, the Lord rides on a swift cloud. The psalmist said, sing praises to God. Sing praises to him. Extol him who rides on the clouds. The Lord is his name. This signals to us that this one who is like a human being is actually divine. And later, approximately 500 years later, Jesus of Nazareth was born. And when he began his public ministry, when he went about preaching and teaching and doing good and healing the sick, he referred to himself over and over and over again as the Son of Man. Jesus took what was a common, ordinary phrase in the Old Testament world, and he started to use it for himself, and he turned a common phrase into a special title, that he is the Son of Man. Eighty-one times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over again, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. In essence, Jesus was saying, what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7, that's me. That's me. And what, and what I'm saying right now is completely in line with what verse 14 says because notice verse 14 says, he was given authority. Now think about Jesus. Think about some of the things that Jesus said. Do you remember when they, they lowered the, 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 par, the, par, the paralyzed man down in front of him when they tore open the roof and brought the man down? What did Jesus do to that man? Well, he healed the man, but he also said his sins were forgiven. And the people went nuts when they heard Jesus say that. And what did Jesus say? How did he respond? The Son of Man has power, authority on earth to forgive sins. Just prior to his ascension into heaven, he gives to us the Great Commission. And he prefaces the Great Commission with these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority. You remember when Jesus was being tried and they brought him to the palace of Caiaphas the priest. And there the Jewish leaders just heaped scorn upon him and spit in his face. Do you you remember what the high priest said? He looked at Jesus and he said, are you the son of the blessed one? Are you the Christ? And what did Jesus say? I am. I am. And he added, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and glory. And Caiaphas immediately shouts out, blasphemy. And they sentenced Jesus to death because they understood that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus practically quoted Daniel 7. And this, of course, refers to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when he will come riding on the clouds in power and in glory. Notice verse 13 again, the last line. He approached the ancients of, ancient of days and was led into his presence. Now, being led into his presence here 
is referring, I believe, to that final day when the Lord Jesus will be brought into the presence of the Father. He's already there, but he's going to come into that throne room, that judgment room that he will take his seat there as, as well. And what is God going to do? Well, having executed his judgment upon all the evil beasts, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, will give to Jesus the eternal kingdom. Look at verse 14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The beasts, the little horn, all of those horns, they're not here anymore. They don't have the last word. They only reign for a period of time, and then the kingdoms of this world will be smashed, and like smoke that rises from the ash heaps, it will be their kingdoms will only exist for a moment in time, and Jesus will come. His kingdom will be established on the earth, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. Hallelujah. Now, there's one more thing, though. One more thing that we have to see in this climax that happens. It's not just Jesus receiving the kingdom, the Son of Man receiving it from the Father, but you and I are going to receive the eternal kingdom of God as well. And that is underscored here in these verses three times. Look at verse 18. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever, he adds. Look at verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And then verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdom under the whole of heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship before him and obey him. Praise the Lord for this. Several times in this, in this vision, Daniel was deeply troubled. He tells that in verse 15. Look at verse 28. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my, pale, my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. That is, I kept the matter in my heart. I, I, didn't, I didn't tell it, he's saying. I kept it in my heart. Now, this is an interesting line because Daniel has not only seen into the abyss of, of human and satanic evil, he has also seen the ultimate victory of God in the end. But the destruction of these beasts and the destruction of evil is so, so awe-filling to his mind that he is still troubled in spite of the fact that he sees that the saints will receive the kingdom of God. Daniel is left shaken by what he sees. This brings us to our takeaway points today, which I've entitled, But I Kept the Matter in My Heart. You see, Daniel was thinking deeply about what he saw. He was considering the interpretation of what, of what he saw, and he was pondering, he was pondering at this point, in his troubled mind, questions that this vision raised in his thinking. And friends, it should do the same for us. In the course of the next week, many of us will be meeting in our life, our life groups, and, and we're going to take this passage, and we're going we're to talk about how it applies to us today. I mean, it's so hard for us to think, well, this is all ancient history in a sense, and it's all stuff about the future, so how does it apply to me today? But we need to wrestle with what this text says. There are some things that we need to keep in our hearts 
in light of what Daniel saw and understood and what was conveyed to us, we need to ask, what are the things that we should be focusing our hearts on then? What are the truths that we need to keep in our hearts, especially as we are moving toward that final day when this little horn, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will appear? Five things, five things. Number one, here's the truth that we've been talking about all through this series. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over creation. He is sovereign within all history, and he is sovereign to all eternity. Amen? He rules history. Now, this is the truth that's been confronting us on every page of Daniel as we've been going through this series. This is the chief message of the book. The Lord God is sovereign. He rules over his creation. The point is this. The beasts of history, the despots, the tyrants, the evil kingdoms that may emerge, the Third Reich kind of kingdoms that will emerge in this world. They may roar and they may frighten and they may crush and subjugate nations and peoples, but they will be brought before the bar of Almighty God and judged, hallelujah, cast into the lake of fire, it says in Revelation 20, and then God will establish his kingdom on this earth. So brothers and sisters in Jesus, don't you be alarmed by all of the political developments that are happening in our nation and around the world that trouble you. Don't be shaken by the fact that the laws of God are being legislated against by governments all around the world, and the laws of God are being covered with all kinds of un godly laws. Don't be concerned that all that is happening in the world, around the world, this, this lulling that is taking place, uh, this, this creating of an atmosphere and a desire for people to somehow embrace someone else or something else other than Jesus, this idea that is propagated by all the kingdoms of this world that we can save ourselves, that salvation belongs to us. No, salvation belongs to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's not be lulled away into, in, in, into a mediocre thinking about these things. Let's not be troubled by all of the intellectual and political elites that meet in a place like Glasgow who think such human audacity that we have the power to save the earth. Can you believe that? After all the years of history, we're still believing this bunk, to quote Archie Bunker. It's craziness. Don't be troubled. Our God is sovereign over all of this. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but the name of Jesus Christ will stand forever. Number two flows out of number one. God has evil on a leash. He has evil on a leash. Now, as I said, this flows out of the fact that God is sovereign over creation within history and to all eternity as well. But think about this for just a moment because some of us talk this way. I hear, oh, oh no, the devil's so strong. The devil is so powerful. Evil is so, you know, it's so rampant everywhere. You and I are talking at times as though we think evil and its power is equal to the power of God. We're talking at times as though we think that Satan is just as powerful as God. Listen, he's not. The Lord has the devil on a leash. God is the master, and he is not just bigger than his dog evil. He has his dog evil on a leash. 
Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Notice what it says about the first beast. The heart of a man was given to it. Given to it. Who gave the first beast a human heart? Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Who told the second beast that? Look at verse 6 in reference to Alexander the Great. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. Who gave Greek the authority to rule? You see, you get the point immediately. The point is that evil can only do what God ordains evil to do. And I know that's a difficult truth for us to get our heads around, but think about this for a, friend, for a moment, friends. Because the greatest display of evil ever in the history of the human race was when the Romans and Jews conspired together to crucify Jesus the Messiah on the cross. And yet all of that leads to our salvation. Do you see it? At the height of human evil, the height of satanic evil against the very Son of God himself. Yet God orchestrating it all so that the Lamb of God would give his life as an atonement for our sins. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge and the glory of God. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He who dwells in the shadow of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence that comes upon the earth. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield. Evil is on a leash, praise the Lord. Number three, God does not want us to withdraw from the world. I think if there's any temptation we face, when we read a passage like Daniel 7, it's like, wow, if, if this is what's hap- happening and if this is what's coming, like I want to check out of the world right now. Drop me off at the next stop. I want to get off this bus immediately. I mean, chapter 7, we, we are faced here with stern realities. How, are, how, how do we react to this? How do we respond to this? Listen, friends, the history of the church is full of people and groups who responded, responded to these, to these, to these evils, the evil embedded in the structures of the governments of the world by either wanting to go to war against them or by withdrawing, retreating into that nice religious spiritual security of our religious ghettos or the peaceful rhythms of monastic life. And for those of us who are older, this temptation grows stronger as we grow older. We start to look upon those retirement days as some utopian era that we're going to enter into where we can surround ourselves by nature and hear the sounds of lovely birds. We hope we can escape it. Remember, when Daniel had this vision, he was an old man. He was way past his time. He wasn't at that point in his life where he would have seen this and suddenly got an adrenaline rush because, wow, this is going to be a great challenge. This is another mountain for me to climb. That wasn't in his thinking at all. He was distressed. He was distressed. But he did not withdraw 
He continued to stay engaged. He served in the Babylonian court. He served in the Persian court, even though he had a full understanding of what Babylon and what Persia and the kingdoms that would follow are all about. He was engaged. Peter tells us that you and I are exiles. He uses the same language to describe the church as is used to describe Daniel and the people of Judah who were prisoners there. We're exiles. We're, we're strangers. We're aliens on this earth. And Peter says this. He says the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. It's time to check out. No. The end of all things is near. Therefore be wise, he says. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled. And he goes on to say, live such lives among the pagans, among the pagans, among those who are bowing down all the time to the beasts of this world. Live among them so that even though they might accuse you of wrongdoing, they will see your good works and they will glorify God on the day he visits us. Don't withdraw. It's not the time to withdraw. This is the time to engage. Number four, God has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. This picture that we have here of the Ancient of Days in his court and the Son of Man coming into that court and the judgment happening, the court being seated, the books being opened, this reminds us of that day when God will judge the world. Paul wrote, or Paul wrote in the book of Acts that when he was in Athens and he was preaching to the philosophers of the city, all around them were all of these idols and images to every known God that they at least knew of. They even had an image to a statue to an unknown God just in case they had missed one. And what did Paul say? He stood before these men and he said, God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, there's that phrase again, human being, by the man, the son of man, whom he has appointed. And he has given proof of this in that he raised him from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a testimony to the whole of the human race that God has prepared a day when he will judge the world. Are you ready for that day? Are you prepared? You won't be able to escape this. The only escape is to come to the Lord Jesus who will shield you from the wrath to come. And finally, number four, God will give to us, God's people, the kingdom. It's coming to us. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the sheep from the goats. To those on his right, the sheep, he will say this, come you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And friends, on that day, we will no longer be ruled by despots and tyrants and beasts and antichrists. No. We will rule and we will reign with Jesus Christ 
forever and ever. To him be the glory and the praise. Amen. Please stand. Lord, what a, what a vision this gives us, a vision that at first alarms us, but then fills our hearts with such hope, eternal hope, blessed hope, living hope. Lord, we are so grateful to you that everything in history is working out exactly as you want it to be according to your sovereign and divine plan and somehow we are a part of what you're doing in the world today oh lord help us never never to withdraw but rather to engage and to lift our eyes toward the heavens to look to see that the son of man is coming soon on the clouds of glory and we pray oh lord use us in these days Use us in these days as your people, as your church, as your light in a dark world. And we pray also, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come soon, we pray. The words from Revelation 1, look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.